We spend a lot of our time as human beings looking for the one. We search for the house that's just right for us, that promises us the independence we crave. And when we find it, we say, ah, this is the one. We search for the holiday that's just right for us, that promises us the rest that we need. And when we find it, we we say, ah, this is the one. We search for the job that's just right for us, that promises us the salary we deserve or the fulfillment we desire. And when we find it, we say, this is the one. We search for the partner that's right for us, that promises us the relationship and love and intimacy that we yearn for. And when we find them, we say, this is the one, the one. Something that we're hoping for, waiting on, that we think if we get it, it will transform our lives for the better. And isn't that especially the case when we have messed up in some way or or failed in, in some way? We look back at something we did or something we said that we regret and we crave relief, forgiveness, a fresh start. And we look for the one thing that will give it to us. That's where Adam and Eve are right now as we join this story in Genesis. They were the first people that God created and they were the first people that God judged. They swallowed Satan's lies and then they swallowed the forbidden fruit. And they came under God's curse and as we saw last week not just them it's the curse we've all come under but we saw last week that even as God pronounces death and curse over them he also gives hope God promised them a day when it would all be restored chapter 3 verse 15 God promised that an offspring of the woman would come and crush Satan's head, who would defeat evil, who would rescue the whole world. The one. And so as we join Adam and Eve outside the garden for the first time in chapter 4, I like to think that they're doing their best impression of Morpheus from the first Matrix film. They are desperately hoping yearning, longing, looking for the one. And in verse 1, you can feel the, the sense of hope rising up in their hearts, can't you? Eve conceives. And even through the agony of childbirth, a painful reminder of life under God's curse, there is hope. Hope because God is there, even outside the garden, helping them. Hope, because an offspring is born, a son, a man, Cain. See, life was bleak, but but now it is bright again, isn't it? And as the gushing new parents hold in their arms the offspring of the woman, As they gaze into the eyes of their firstborn son, they cannot help but wonder. Is this the one? 
Is this the one who's going to make everything right again? Is this the offspring who will crush Satan's head, who will defeat evil for us? Is this the one? Well, spoiler alert, no, Cain is not the one. First, because he is an angry man. He's not the one, he's an angry man. Cain and his brother Abel grew up. And they're both, I guess, what, what we would say, religious, right? That they both come before God in worship. They both present an offering to the Lord that they're expressing their, their gratitude to God, their dependence on, on him. If this were today, both Cain and Abel would be here this morning. On, on the surface, these two brothers would look to us exactly the same, both singing the songs with their whole hearts, both following the readings, both bowing their heads in prayer. But there is one crucial difference. Look at it with me, the second half of verse 4. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, the Lord did not look with favour. Why? Why? What, what's, the, what's the difference? And, and it's worth noting the text doesn't tell us explicitly what the difference is or why this happens. Both bring an offering from their respective areas of work, both of which are later going to be prescribed in the law. So it's not that God likes roast lamb but not roast veg. That's not the reason. Something else is going on. Now there is a little hint in the text Abel brings the best he can offer. He brings the fatty firstborns of his flock. Cain, on the other hand, he, he, we're told he just brings some of what he's grown. Maybe there is a difference there. But later in the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that something else is going on under the surface. We read this. By faith. Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. You see, Hebrews 11 tells us that the problem with Cain is not so much the offering, but the offerer. Abel and his offering is looked upon with favour because he comes before God, he approaches God with a right heart. By faith, trusting God, looking to the Lord in joyful dependence. And though on the surface, at least, Cain seems to be doing the right thing, bringing an offering to God, his heart is not right. And he's not looked on with favor. They both look like they're worshipping God, but one is true worship and the other is not. There's something about Cain, he's just going through the motions, trying to make it look like he's doing the right thing, but his motive is wrong. He's trying to keep God off his back by doing something, but his heart's not really in it. That's why he keeps the best bits back for himself. But that's a problem. Because God is not just concerned with what you do, but with why you do it and how you do it. He doesn't just look at the offering but the offerer. So I, I want to ask you this morning, why are you here? 
Why are you here? Because if your heart isn't really in it, neither is God. He has no regard for those kinds of offerings or sacrifices or songs that come from that kind of disinterested heart. Just read Amos chapter 5. God sees your heart. Your motivations, your affections, your thoughts, your desires. He sees them all with perfect clarity. You can't hide behind religious performance with God because God sees you, that the real you. That's uncomfortable for us. And, and when that gets exposed, we find out who we really are. It reveals who we really are. Because for Cain, the moment his offering is not accepted, that, that God sees through the sham, we see the real Cain. His heart gets exposed. The, the narrative focuses our attention not so much on the reason for his rejection, but Cain's response to his rejection. Anger. And Cain's deep anger reveals what's really going on in his heart. His downcast face reveals his soul. But I want you to notice, Cain is not angry at himself because he's done the wrong thing. He's angry at God because he's been caught. Isn't that what we're like? We get caught doing something we shouldn't do, and then we get angry because we got caught. The, the, the time, the, the only time I got a speeding ticket through the post, I did not respond by saying, ah, yes, I was speeding. I am so glad they saw that. It is good and, and right that I have to go on that speed awareness course to show me the error of my ways. No chance. Anger welled up inside me. How dare they catch me breaking the law? Those police with their mobile cameras without any warning. We ought to be guilty and sorry, but instead we're guilty and angry. And those are the moments that reveal what's really going on in our hearts. Most of us are very pleasant people when things are going how we want, but you see what someone is really like the moment they don't get their own way. And Cain is angry. God really graciously moves towards Cain in verse 6. He's not trying to condemn him. He's like a parent with a child, trying to help him to, to see why his reaction is so wrong and over the top. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. See, Cain clearly knows he wasn't doing the right thing in, uh, in his offering with, with the right heart. But this, this failure, it's not an opportunity for him to be condemned. It's an opportunity for him to try again. God is offering, you see, God is offering him a second chance, an opportunity to respond, to change, to, to get it right. There is still a way for him to be accepted. 
But there is also the great danger of Cain allowing his anger to overpower him. His anger makes him a a very easy target for Satan. That's why Paul warns the Ephesians, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Because sin is lurking like a lion, ready to pounce and rule over him. This is a crucial moment in the story. It's always a crucial moment in our stories when when people take and attempt to point out our sin. When when someone tries to do that, you can respond in two ways. You can either get defensive and, and double down in your anger, or you can open up and listen up. That's hard for all of us to do. It's never easy to do that, but it is our only hope if we're not to be ruled over by sin. So how will Cain respond to God's gentle word of correction? Well, instead of fighting sin, he fights his brother. Is Cain the one? No. Because secondly, he is a murderous man. Cain is a murderous man. Think back. Adam and Eve had to be talked into their sin by the snake. But not even God can talk Cain out of it. No sooner has the Lord finished his warning, Cain is ready to kill. He is angry, angry enough to murder. And the anger in his heart finds expression in his hands. It is a cold-blooded, calculated killing. He lures his brother out into the field and then attacks him. And the man who works the ground violently puts his younger brother into the ground. His anger rules him. And can you see how sin is just spiraling out of control? We've gone from anger to murder in a matter of minutes. And the craziest thing about all of this is that Cain's problem is with God, not with his brother. But his anger at God, it sort of boils over into this jealous, envious resentment of his brother. And it boils over. He can't take it out on God. So he does the next best thing. He takes his anger out on God's image. Now, from, from what I, I know of us, none of us here this morning are murderers. Though I do want to say that is not a barrier for coming to Jesus. But we've all felt something of what Cain experienced in that moment. The blood boiling rage and anger in our hearts, even if we didn't let it out. And Jesus says the anger that we feel in our hearts is the same source as Cain's murder. The hate that we feel in our hearts makes us just as guilty before God as Cain. But afterwards that the Lord again draws near to Cain in verse 9 and he asks him, where is your brother Abel? Now, don't worry if you're feeling a bit of deja vu at this point. This all feels quite familiar, doesn't it? Someone sins, the Lord comes along and says and asks where someone is. 
It's just like in chapter 3, isn't it? Just what God does with Adam and Eve. And just like with them, God is not after information. He knows very well where, where, where Abel is, but he's trying to draw Cain out. He's inviting Cain to, to come clean, to confess, to cry out for mercy. But if the question is just like chapter 3, so is the response. Adam, when he was asked the same question, shifted the blame. It was her. Cain just flat out denies it. Like father, like son. Except Cain's response, it is worse, isn't it? I mean, at least Adam, in the end, admitted it. But Cain comes out with this notorious, petulant line. Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, get off my back, God. I don't care where he is. Why are you asking me anyway? He Cain, he denies any responsibility he has towards his younger brother. But, but we know this. We are meant to be our brother's keeper. We do have a responsibility towards one another, to love, to care for one another, even to correct one another. But sin in Cain's life, it turns him in on himself, denies any responsibility towards anyone else. Do you see how rapidly sin is spiraling out of control? First it was anger, then he deceived his brother, then he murdered him. Now he's throwing out a bare-faced lie to God. I mean, does he really think he's going to get away with it? Does he really think God doesn't know? But that's what we're like too, isn't it? We lie and then rather than coming clean, we add lies on top of lies to cover the tracks. We compound our sin with yet more sin. But God sees through it all. And in verse 10, the Lord says to Cain again in words that echo chapter 3, What have you done? What have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Because Abel's blood speaks. Abel's blood speaks. It cries out to God from the ground for vengeance and judgment. And God hears just as he always hears the innocent cries of his people. Is Cain the one? No. Cain isn't a saviour. He's a murderer. And as a result, he is a cursed man. Cain is a cursed man. Abel's blood speaks, are crying out to God for vengeance and judgment. And God hears in response to his sin, again in ways that echo chapter 3, the curse on Adam and Eve, Cain now comes under God's curse. Now, now this is different, slightly different to Adam and Eve. Their curse has a direct effect on our lives. But Cain's curse is specific only to him. Cain is not a representative of humanity in the way that Adam is. So this curse attaches to him personally, not to the human race generally, aside. 
So Cain's occupation is to work the ground. But now the ground is his enemy, refusing to yield crops for him. And Cain is sentenced to be a restless wanderer, a fugitive, always on the run, driven from the land, driven from the family, driven from the Lord. Cain piles sin upon sin upon sin, and the Lord piles curse upon curse, judgment upon judgment. Cain is sent further east of Eden, even than his parents already are, driven even further away from the garden. But I want you to notice God's judgment is not without mercy. Unsurprisingly, Cain doesn't take his punishment very well. He complains to God in self-pity. It's too harsh. It's too severe. Especially Cain recognizes, you know, someone from from Adam and Eve's family is going to grow up and hunt me down and, and take revenge for Abel. But in his mercy, God promises to protect Cain's life. He puts a sign on him so that anyone who comes near him will know not to touch him. God prevents more bloodshed and he prevents Cain from becoming a victim of the very crime he perpetrated against his brother but it is still judgment Cain will live out his life the rest of his existence under God's curse is Cain the one no he is a cursed man so Cain isn't the one But maybe it could be someone from Cain's family. You know, maybe things might get better after a few generations. And in verses 17 to 24, we're introduced to Cain's descendants. And it climaxes in the seventh generation from him in this guy, Lamech. He's the focus. Maybe he's the one. Wrong again. Lamech is not the one either because he is a vengeful man. Lamech embodies all the worst aspects of Cain's violent traits. The apple never falls far from the tree. Lamech is this proud, boastful bigamist. I mean, it's not a great start, is it, when he takes two wives, distorting God's pattern for marriage. But what's worse, I think, is his violent, vengeful bloodlust. The first poem in the Bible was a love song from Adam to Eve in the Garden of Eden, the paradise of delights. And this is the second. A song of violent vengeance from Lamech to his two wives a long way east of Eden. And Lamech boasts, this young man injured me and in a totally disproportionate response, I killed him. You see what he's saying? If you offend me, I will death you. If you cross me, I will kill you. And Lamech boasts about it. He glories in this violent vengeance. Do you see how rapidly sin is spiraling out of control? But it's not all bad. His sons develop arts and and music and culture. Maybe Lamech commissioned Jubal to write a tune for his lovely new song. His other sons develop herding and tools and engineering. This is the birth of human civilization. 
See, human beings are created in God's image. They still bear God's image. And so they're capable of great innovation and brilliance. But that image is now distorted and damaged and tainted by sin. There's always this dark side to human beings. And that's what we see in our own society. We develop amazing technology like the internet and we use social media to send anonymous death threats to footballers who missed a pen. We have made such amazing advances in agricultural technology that we can produce more than enough food to feed the world. And yet through greed and corruption, millions of people still die of starvation. We invent amazingly creative pieces of cinema and music, but we use them to glorify violence, vengeance, and sexual abuse. That is what human beings are like. All of us are this messy mixture. We're capable of great creativity and beauty and good, but also great evil. And and, and that mixture, that's not, Some human beings over there who are really bad and other human beings over there who are really good. No, no, no. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and we could just separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. You and me both. And so sin spreads everywhere, infiltrates everything, every aspect of human society, even born out of our amazingly creative industry, is tainted with human sin. So Cain is not the one. No one from Cain's family is the one. See, we need a new man. We need a new man. You've got to feel for Eve, haven't you, in this chapter? She's desperately hoping, waiting, longing for the one, the offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. But now one of her sons is dead and the other is cursed to be a restless wanderer for the rest of his existence. But in verse 25, she conceives again and gives birth to Seth, another offspring, a new man. And there's a glimmer of hope in the line of Seth because we're told in verse 26, at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. And what we see by the end of the Bible is that God works through the line of Seth, a descendant of Seth who brings about the one who finally comes, Jesus Christ, the ultimate new human being. And Jesus Christ, he is so much better than Cain. Jesus is not at all given to anger or hatred or envy or murder. Jesus Christ is totally without sin. He is gentle and humble in heart. Jesus is our our elder brother who joyfully takes responsibility to be our keeper who doesn't come to to take life, but to give us life by laying down his own life. And so Jesus is even better than Abel too. See, like Abel, Jesus was righteous and yet violently murdered by people who hated him. 
who were jealous and angry. And like Abel, Jesus' blood speaks. Like Abel, Jesus' blood speaks, but Jesus' blood shed on the cross does not cry out for vengeance or for judgment, but for mercy and forgiveness. Forgiveness that covers for 77 times our sin. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's a better word that doesn't put us further underneath God's curse, but brings us out from under God's curse to enjoy God's blessing. It's a better word that means everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a better word that means even our half-hearted, imperfect offerings, our blemished spiritual sacrifices to God, are made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's a better word that makes us new from the inside out. That means we, we change. So we, we don't get angry with others when they wrong us, but we forgive them. It means that we don't get defensive when we're corrected, but we open up. It is a better word that, rather than driving us away from God, brings us back to him with confidence and assurance. Jesus is the one. The one who will transform our lives if we come to him, who gives us a fresh start. Whose blood cries out not for vengeance, but for our forgiveness before God. Let's pray together.